Father Byron Hagen, a priest of the Archdiocese of St. Paul in Minneapolis, offering a reflection on the Deep Down Things interview with Dr. Deborah Savage on the topic of developing a theological anthropology of man-woman complementarity in the creation accounts of Genesis 1-3. John Paul II put the Genesis creation stories on the table in a fresh and creative way as a response to the dissolution of confidence of Christians in their traditional sexual ethics. We cannot be too thankful for him, for the research project to which he helped give birth is one of the most promising theological endeavors of our time. I'm also thankful to Deborah Savage for drawing our attention here just now. As a pastor and teacher of the faith, my mind is never far from the creation stories of Genesis and the way in which Wojtyla framed the issues of these texts, what he was able to draw from them, and how he related the texts to the human question. What is the vision of human nature revealed in the Genesis creation accounts. There's so much occasion in our time for the Christian teacher to refer to these accounts. The two accounts work complementarily to speak a single truth. As the evidence mounts that the old rationalist liberal anthropology is powerless against the new ideologies of sex and gender, which do not mask their revolutionary and therefore inherently violent character. The anthropology that emerges is neither one of domination and subservience, nor a battle of the sexist struggle for supremacy, but rather one of harmony and communion. It's only after the fall that the man-woman relationship is cursed to be one of adversarial struggle and resentment. In the beginning, it was not so. Even as we recognize the creation accounts of Genesis as a synthetic collaboration between different eras of Hebrew thought, what binds the varying approaches together is that their reflections upon the world and human life are situated within a vision of God's good ordering as intelligent, loving creator who has made the world for harmony and self-transcendence. How moving it can be to step from the cold, purposeless infinity of the modern universe, which serves as the background of evolutionary struggle up from the muck, and into the warm hearth of a Jewish cosmos. A world seen as a veritable garden of meaning and spiritual sustenance for man, in which the story of the world's coming to be was thought best represented in hymn-like liturgical recitation. For the Hebrew, and ultimately for the Christian, the evil that had entered the world had wounded but not definitively spoiled it, nor deprived it of hope for redemption. For its redemption was strangely included in its curse. If only it were true, all we disillusioned cynics might be tempted to think. But could it possibly be? How could we recognize signs of the truth in this Genesis anthropology? Now the question of the Bible's meaning has been so long vexed that many have given up on it altogether. What has become clear across the field of scholarship is that ancient religious texts belong to interpretive communities and can only be understood from within those communities. How does one grapple with a religious text, then, when one is alienated from the community in which its authentic meaning can appear? It is only by facing squarely the troubled epistemic situation in our post-Christian secular culture that we have a half a chance of overcoming the problematics. Can the worldview of the Bible have anything to offer us? 
Can we recognize and admit that we need a voice from beyond our era to speak to us from within our era? We believers must realize that we stand also within the secular problem, even as we give our first and last allegiance to the traditional faith. It is because Orthodox belief is both protected from, but not immune to the special shades of skepticism created in our time, that it has something to offer the recovering secularist. Here, I propose, is an opening gambit. We may begin by asking how and why the original speaker's meaning of any ancient text at all should impact us beyond the level of pure historical interest. Only in acknowledging that we stand to be informed by ancient outlooks will we discover any reason at all for placing ourselves in some way under the authority of an ancient community of thought. C.S. Lewis pointed out that authors of former ages will have their own prejudices and blind spots, but they're unlikely to be the same prejudices and blind spots as those of our time, and so the truths that we see can be complemented by the truths grasped clearly by former ages, and we stand to be enriched, corrected even, quite possibly saved, by truths so crucial for our time and yet so obscured by our particular bigotries and blindness. Even though I may feel alienated from the community of informed judgment which allows me to approach the Bible as an authoritative text to be received in faith, it is possible to begin by recognizing that I don't know everything. As a culture, we may well have forgotten some important things, things crucial even for our very survival. How can we begin the process of remembering? A tradition historical reading, for instance, of the accounts of the creation of man and woman in the garden, can serve to unmask the reflexive bigotry of our time with respect to the Bible. Readings like the one Deborah Savage gives here simply contradict and correct those who assume almost as a matter of prior dogmatic commitment that the Hebrew and Christian stories are unambiguously misogynistic. I'm reminded of a character from Whit Stillman's film Metropolitan who remarks straightforwardly, you don't have to have read a book to have an opinion on it. I haven't read the Bible either. Various traditions of Christian Genesis reading are partly to blame for this, of course, since it's almost a part of the Western tradition itself to give biased readings of the Bible intended to shore up prior commitments based in distorted anthropology, ethics, or morality, or some other agenda of the moment. It's long been said and will continue to be said against the Bible that it has been used to justify every form of oppression. That's an assertion that always seemed to me to stand in greater need of proof than one generally sees offered, except for the tendentious sort of bad faith inferences that characterize popular critical engagements with Christianity. But let's admit that the Bible is a book claimed by many a scoundrel. This fact in itself doesn't stand as definitive evidence against the goodness of the Bible. One could well consider that the moral smudges left on the Bible's pages by its many flawed readers testify to the grave importance of the Bible in human tradition. It is a book so important that it will be referenced as an authority eventually by any party whatever in support of any cause or theory whatever. At the same time, we cannot recommend as antidote to badly interested readings mere disinterested readings. For a disinterested reading would be either reading without a purpose and therefore without a reason for attention, or some sort of rationalistic conceit whereby we pretend to an impossible standpoint of pure objectivity 
thus either deceiving ourselves or deceiving others with now necessarily smuggled-in presuppositions. This cannot be the answer. There can be any number of reasons for reading the Bible, but those for whom religious faith is rooted in the Bible and the stories it tells and interpretations it gives constitute an already interested standpoint that comes with prior commitments of its own about what kind of document the Bible is. Yet what we all at least should want to do, but especially, I argue, those who begin from a secular or purely academic historical standpoint, is to allow the writers of the Bible to speak in their own culturally situated voices the stories and accounts that had so crucial and grave a meaning for them. And then, if not in the name of fidelity to tradition, in the name of diversity and inclusion, or in the name of democracy, or perhaps just for the sheer thrill of it, allow for the possibility that the Bible is a source of enlightenment, not simply about the outlook of ancient Hebrews and Christians, but for us today as well. To the extent that there remain those who belong to a continuous tradition of reading and receiving these ancient texts, it should stand to reason that such voices ought to have no small part in this conversation, perhaps even a prominent part. We allow the Muslim traditions to take the lead in interpreting the Quran, do we not? Faithful Jews and Christians, on the other hand, even though each in their unique way give pious allegiance to the Bible, must also be prepared to put their readings in the dock, as it were, realizing that tradition is not static, but active and dynamic. And so we must allow all of us our commitments to be judged and purified by the living voice of reason. The sophisticated anthropology of man-woman complementarity that has come to constitute Deborah Savage's academic project leans upon the breadth and depth of knowledge of the Western tradition including the modern sciences. What she does for us with Genesis in this interview is to demonstrate how the art of biblical interpretation can be both traditional and creative, how it can reveal both historically ancient truths and exciting, relevant novelties. Because biblical interpretation at its heart, like all aspects of theology, is the art of seeing the present moment through the lens not simply of the ancient but of the eternal. It's not that the present moment determines the eternal, but rather that new aspects of the eternal come to light for us as we bring it to bear upon our present questions. The vision I'm talking about here is made possible for the believer through the gift of faith. The power of faith is precisely for the activation of the spiritual vision by which we can fulfill the destiny of our unique place in the created order. Thus, faith itself is in accordance with the created order, not an alien imposition, on our rational nature, but a perfection of it. And when we see a truth of faith, we're captivated by a joy that signals both surprise and recognition. Surprise at the infinite possibility of the goodness of our created nature. Joy that we are made for cognizant, willing participation in it. And this is precisely what I think is happening with the man-woman complementarity thesis. From an ancient text about the most primordial realities, there are discovered principles which offer a healing light in the midst of the brokenness of contemporary social life and theory. I don't argue that we should accept the thesis simply because it is ancient, certainly not, nor even because, at least to start with, that it accords with Catholic teaching or that it encourages and facilitates peace and concord between men and women 
especially between husbands and wives, or even because it solves a pressing theoretical conundrum. The reason one accepts any claim is because one judges it true, but the gateway to the true is the beautiful, which warms the heart and prepares it for the union of love. What is beautiful is perennial and symphonic, and what doctrines, when received, can make a collection of individuals into society, a company of friends, has a claim on our allegiance, a claim to truth. However one may evaluate the late modern cultural critical theories, one thing even their proponents say about them is that they flow from a conception of the unity of theory and praxis. Whatever motivates or furthers the process of social revolution is therefore true. With everything reduced to the social-political, however, where's the place for the beautiful? The possibility of social reconciliation is forever deferred if we're to be in constant revolution, which, by the way, will always mean the fomenting of strife and the exploitation of the disharmonious elements of human life as levers for the attainment of power by the politically ambitious. Beauty itself has no place in the world of constant social revolution, and thus neither does love. Beauty and love are left no room to operate upon the one who will not rest from the fist-pounding demand for justice, who, with the merciless j'accuse ever on his lips, can never offer the te absolvo that alone brings reconciliation. This has been Father Byron Hagen with the Deep Down Things podcast, a partnership between Logos Journal, Catholic Answers, and friends at the Center for Catholic Studies at the University of St. Thomas and St. Paul. I look forward to being with you again for future reflections, available on patreon.com slash deepdownthings. God bless you. Deep Down Things is part of the Catholic Answers family of podcasts. For lots more great Catholic radio and podcast programming, please download the Catholic Answers Live app. 